Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to It's Rainmaking Time. This is Kim Greenhouse, and it is time to focus on science. In particular, we're going to be talking about a new presentation created by our guest, John Droz Jr., called Science Under Assault. John is a physicist and environmental advocate. He has a BS in mathematics and physics, and his MS is from Syracuse University. He had a very interesting and substantial career GE in the aerospace area. He was the large-scale integrated expert at GE that handled huge projects for them, and he was in components engineering, quality control, and has been extremely concerned about the corruption of science that science is becoming a religion and that the dogma of science is taking over the scientific process and the scientific method. We are going to talk today about his organization called wiseenergy.org, scienceunderassault.info, his newsletter, Energy and Environmental Newsletter, and his upcoming appearance at the Capitol to present this presentation, Science Under Assault. After 35 segments of its rainmaking time in the area of climate, it is very clear to us that you should all read this presentation, take a look at it. It's a synthesis of the segments we've done. It's a nice work, and you'll get the essence of it very, very quickly. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome physicist and environmental advocate John Droz Jr. to its rainmaking time. Good morning. Thank you very much, Kim. I appreciate the opportunity here to talk. Well, I appreciate you being here. It's a tough, tough, tough subject. To go into what you've written about in the presentation is difficult because you mention every facet of how science is being obstructed. And I think for us to be able to think critically, which is one of the main points in your presentation, we should talk about what led you to write this and why are you going to the Capitol? Well, it's actually a long story. Uh, The brief version is that I was able to retire when I was 34. I'm now 67. So the question was, once I retired from my position at GE, it wasn't anything to do that I didn't like it. I liked it a lot, but there was other things in life that I was also interested in doing. So I was always very interested in the environment. I had a home in the Adirondacks of upstate New York, lived on a lake. So to me, nature and the environment were a top priority of mine. So I decided one of the main things I was going to do with my time was to look into environmental matters. So the first one I tackled was water quality standards in New York State. The more I looked into that, the more distressing it became because I found out that the water quality standards weren't really all that good. So I embarked on a campaign to try to improve those water quality standards and dealt with three groups of people. One was citizens trying to educate them about things like septic pollution and water, for instance. Second was bureaucrats, agency people, state legislators. And the third was environmental organizations, people like the Sierra Club, which I was a member of, trying to get them all working together to try to improve water quality standards in the state. What I learned in this experience, which took years, was that each one of these groups was somewhat different than I expected. But I was particularly disappointed with the environmental groups here, Despite their claim that they were interested in water quality standards and environmental issues, which certainly water quality standards would be a top one, their actual efforts when it came push to shove were quite minimal in New York State. 
I had assumed in the beginning that these people would jump at the opportunity to improve things like water quality standards, and that is exactly what did not happen. Over a period of time, because I'm an organized person, I did start collecting names of people who I thought were on the right side of things as far as being science-oriented people rather than pushing some political agenda. Some of these people, who I learned to respect and get to know, suggested that I start looking into the energy area as well, another area that is really a lot about the environment. So I did. So I've been involved with energy things over 10 years now. Where did the water quality issue end up? Where did you finally stop? We did get some success, but it was extraordinarily difficult considering that a lot of these things are pretty obvious. For instance, every 10 years, the New York State Department of Environmental Conservation reviews their water quality standards for the entire state. Now, these are standards for drinking water supplies for New York City, for instance, you know, the entire state. So, 20 plus million people are impacted by these standards. So every 10 years, they have a public comment period. So they sent this to me as an individual, which is pretty unheard of, but that's because they knew I was interested. So I wrote up three pages of critiques of their standards. There were several serious deficiencies of them. And then I went, just to make sure that environmental groups were aware of this, I called over 30 major New York State environmental groups, people like the Sierra Club, and made sure they were aware that there was this 10-year window of opportunity here, that they had an opportunity to fix some of the problems here in the water quality standards, and they almost all said they were aware of it, and they almost all said they were going to send in something. And I said, well, I'd like to share with you what I wrote up so that maybe you can piggyback on that or whatever, but I've given this a lot of thought, so I sent them a copy of what I wrote besides. So they could choose to ignore that or whatever, but they gave them some extra food for that. So after the time period for felicitations was over, I went to the DEC person who was coordinating this, and after submitting a Freedom of Information Act, I got a copy of all the submissions for everybody in the state about the standards. Well, it turns out there was about 20 submissions from businesses that were arguing to reduce the standards. They thought the standards were too tough for their particular business. Why did you have to go through the Freedom of Information Act? Well, to because get they that? refused to give it to me without doing that. That's disturbing already, but go ahead. I tell you, this is just the world we live in. So I'd asked them, can you send me this? And they said, fine, not unless you submit a Freedom of Information request. So I did. Anyway, there's about 20 submissions for these proposed changes were for people who wanted to reduce the standards. There was my submission, of course. And that was it. That was the total number of submissions. There wasn't a single submission from a single environmental group. Now, what do you deduce out of that, John? Well, I deduce out of it that the claim that they are all about the environment isn't so. They have other fish to fry that, to them, water quality standards for 20-plus million people wasn't that high a priority on their list. I'm just giving that as an example, but that's been my definite conclusion from 30 years of dealing with these type of people, that they say one thing, but their actions speak louder than words, and this is a perfect example, where they had an opportunity to improve the standards of water for 20-plus million people. So this is no small, trivial backwater matter. This is a big deal. Yet not a single one of them had the time to submit a simple-page letter despite me alerting them to it and phone and sending an email, despite me giving them sample comments that were already pre-done. They still didn't have the time to do it. So 
what these people convey as to what they're about and what they are actually about are two different things, is what I concluded. Okay. And water quality, by the way, throughout America is pretty abysmal, and they're going to be adding lithium to water, not just fluoridating everything and putting all these chemicals in that are virulent to biological systems, but now lithium in water. The whole thing is a disaster. Talk a little bit about how you went from that to the energy part. Did you give up at that point after you've been through the Freedom of Information Act? You saw actually who was involved and who wasn't, and you got that our water standards weren't the highest priority in the state of New York. And then what? Well, actually, through my persistence, and it's pretty much on my own, and, you know, dealing with legislators, whatever, that they did make some changes, certainly nowhere as near what they should have, but they did make some. And then there was a second water issue that came across almost sequentially after that, and that was that there uh, is a lot of good water in the, the Northeast, and particularly in upstate New York. So this was attracted by people who were in the water bottling business, people like Nestle. Yeah, of course. They were going into small communities, buying up an acre of land, setting up a well, and in some cases pumping hundreds of millions, if not billions, of gallons of water out, trucking it away to some bottling facility with no controls over this effectively whatsoever. Oh, of course. You know they want to privatize water so that it's not available as a public right. You know that, right? Well, that was part of the issue. Is this a public right or not? Can anybody just drill a hole in the ground and take out unlimited quantities? That was an issue. And so the problem was, as I discovered, was that New York State didn't really have any laws that were addressing this, and that's why it was happening. So I tried again with the same groups of people here to get some regulations passed. This time, fortunately, some of the environmental groups did join me, even though none of them took this action on their own. It was only because I got them going. They did get together, but as soon as we got a group of about a dozen environmental groups together, there began to be serious inviting. For instance, there was one half of these environmental people who wanted to have meaningful, strict, what I would call, regulations. The other half was basically saying, well, we don't want to have anything too strict because we'll get nothing and... They were willing to have a very token, superficial set of rules and regulations, which to me was just a complete waste of time. So there was a big infight here as to which side this would happen on. And Is it really infighting or is it organic conflict? Because whenever you're trying to get something together and get something useful done, there is this certain amount of tension, this organic conflict and tension, because something's trying to come through and everybody comes from this different place. So is it that? Or is it infighting? Because infighting means something very different. Maybe we have different definitions. I'm not sure. But uh, I'm saying these are all environmental organizations. They all, on the surface, said that maintaining water quality and standards and all this kind of stuff was a top priority for them. And yet their actions were quite different. Some people said, even though water quality is a very important thing for me, I'm willing to accept token standards. Well, to me, that's just hypocrisy. Okay. And then there were other people who said that water quality is an important thing to us and our group, and we're going to stick by our guns and say this is what ought to be done. If the legislators decide to water down, that's up to them, but it's not going to be with our blessing. So in my view, that was the side I was on, and there were several organizations that were promoting that. So maybe it was differences of opinion as to who was having control of this little group or whatever. I don't know, but... I'm saying these environmental groups were certainly not of one voice, and a lot of them were advocating for things that I would not consider to be environmentally friendly. Okay. How did you transition into focusing on energy? 
Through this whole process, I got to know literally hundreds of people, and I started keeping a list of people who I thought were the, the, the better people. In other words, people who were genuinely environmentally interested and genuinely interested in real science and so on and so forth, as versus people pushing political agendas and personal agendas. So I started putting together that little sub-network, you might say, and communicated more with these people. So we would talk back and forth about other issues and whatever that were facing us as a state and as a country. And through those correspondences, I became more aware about things like wind energy. Some of these people sent to me and say, are you really following what's going on with this stuff? I said, no, just got my hands full with this other business here. But they said, well, a lot of it's environmental things, and it's a lot based on science, and you'd be a good person to get involved here because it isn't what it seems to be. So because I respected some of these people who suggested this, I did some investigation, and it uh, turns out they were right, that it is a complete departure of science. You know what? I have to tell you that I was so shocked when I did a piece on wind energy four years ago, I could not believe the waste of money, the ineffectiveness of it, and how the American public has been sold on this. It's amazing. I was one of them. Shocking. Shocking. Well, these people are very good at marketing, so they know how to convey sound bites like wind is free, clean, and green. Um, it isn't any of those things, but that's part of the problem, that there's really nobody that is putting some balance to this issue. That's what our little coalition is trying to do, uh, which is named Alliance for Wise Energy Decisions, AWED. So that's our website that you did mention called wiseenergy.org. But that's partly really what our objective is, is to put some balance to these marketers' pitch. Because that's what all these people are. They're just salespeople. They're promoting something that they have either an economic or a political gain to make. Well, that's fine. That's their right in a democracy. But in our view, it shouldn't be at the expense of unknowing citizens. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. You're smart. You pay attention to evidence. Go get pure vitamin C at purecllc.com. Prevent colds. And if you have them, get rid of them quickly. If you have heart disease, take pure vitamin C. If you don't have heart disease, prevent it. And above all, make sure you get this brand of vitamin C that is GMO-free, corn-free, China-free, and manufactured in the United States of America. Pure C LLC. Go get yourself some. And back to the show. Now, there's something so serious going on in the scientific milieu that's affecting and impacting public thinking and inability to think critically and that is the obstruction of science. Can you talk about that? Okay, well, that's a big topic, and that is the uh, basis of my presentation, scienceunderassault.info is the URL for it. I believe that science is being misrepresented here in a wide variety of ways. So you might say, well, why is that? Well, the why is because of two things. Number one, that so far, science is still held in high regard in the public's uh, perspective. So people think well of science. So second of all, when there is an effort to pass some technical policy, let's say energy policy, the promoters of such a policy know that if they have the blessing of science, that that will effectively ensure that it will be adopted. Start with those two things. People think well of science and these promoters of a particular agenda, let's say they are promoting wind energy, know very well if they stand up and say, well, wind energy is supported as a scientific solution. If 
Fine. Then most people, because they do think well of science, will say, well, fine. Science says it's a good thing. Who am I to argue? And it'll be a pretty easy road for them to get things passed. And that's essentially what happened. That's how RPS's Renewable Portfolio Standards got passed in quite a few states because people made those type of claims. And the problem is is that most people, even though they've all had some science courses, typically in high school, have little actual understanding of what actually science is. And as you pointed out here, and in my view and the view of some other people who are involved in this quite a bit, science ultimately is a process. So that's really what it is if you want to boil down to a simple soundbite. Science is a process. So that's the question. When these people stand up and say wind energy, for instance, is scientifically proven to be a good thing, have these people actually gone through a scientific process to be able to make that claim? And the answer is no. But the fact is they know that most people don't even realize that science is a process, and even the ones that do probably don't even understand what the process amounts to. So how many people are going to call them on the fact that they're standing up there and making deceptive statements? And the answer is essentially almost nobody, except a few people like me. But almost nobody is going to object when they stand up and make these false claims about science. Did you read the book by David Hull, Science as a Process? No, I didn't. Okay. But you had heard about it, right? Yes. Haven't had a chance to read books in a few years, unfortunately. Just too many things going on. So to me, that's sort of an interesting dichotomy here, a conflict. And on the one hand, people think well of science, but on the the other hand, they know very little about science. So for instance, I think an interesting thing, maybe on one of your programs, you can do an on-the-street survey and ask 50 people off the street, tell me what science is. Give me a definition of science. I think you'd find that almost all of them are going to give you inadequate definitions. So the fact that we can think very well of something and say it's a great thing and yet have very little understanding of it is sort of an interesting situation here. And I think marketers know this fact, and that's why they can get up and make claims about science that are not true. I want to get back to a couple of things that you covered in this presentation that I think the public as a synthesis should be aware of. Consensus was never, ever part of science until this global warming and climate change agenda came into being. Consensus was never relevant. I want you to explain why. Well, science is based on a process, and the four elements of the process are a scientific assessment of a claim. That would be a hypothesis. Let's say it's a theory of relativity or whatever from Albert Einstein. It would consist of four things, a comprehensive assessment, an objective assessment, a third would be a transparent, in other words, the data would all be available for everybody to inspect, and the fourth would be empirical, which means it'd be based on real-world evidence here. So comprehensive, objective, transparent, empirical. So the question is, when people make a science claim, are they including these elements or not? And the answer is almost universally not. As an example, most of their claims are based on things like computer models. Well, a computer model isn't real world, necessarily. I have been a computer programmer, programmed over 100,000 lines of code myself by hand, so the fact is there are innumerable assumptions made in a computer program that, number one, are not identified, and number two, are not proven. 
Oh, just because they come and say, well, this computer program says that XYZ will happen means very little, quite frankly. I did a whole segment on computer modeling and how that was the basis of the entire climate change, global warming propaganda. And I'm going to say propaganda because they weren't using real world data. And we don't know what went into those computers. That's right. So when you add simulations into the mix as one of the primary elements of how they're deducing what they're deducing, and then you add the use of consensus, which never occurred in science, then you add the peer review process, which we did a whole segment on that. People think peer review means if you don't get through peer review that something you're doing is not right or not accurate, et cetera. It has nothing to do with that. So I'm glad that you mentioned all this in your presentation because each one of these areas, consensus, computer simulations, peer review, all these elements are the obstruction of science. Right. Well, I identified 15 different things. I know. Presentation there that are different ways that science is being falsely marketed to the public. But about your question there before about consensus, consensus is never a matter of science. I mean, we don't take a vote on something. As an example, I mean, when Einstein came out with a theory of relativity, do you think they take a vote of the experts at that time? Well, it'd be preposterous. I mean, first of all, most of them wouldn't have accepted it because it was a radical new idea. Even if they all did or they all did not is irrelevant. Science is proven by facts or verified by facts. So it's never a consensus-based thing. We don't take votes on anything in science. The second thing is that most people don't realize is there's never been a legitimate vote anyways. Even if you believe that a vote is an appropriate thing, there never has been a legitimate vote among scientists about things like global warming. Never. There's been a couple of small surveys, but every one of those surveys has proven to be extraordinarily biased and flawed in how they phrase the question or who they actually ask the question of and things of that nature. But there's never been a real survey among scientists about anything, and I doubt there ever will be, because even if they did agree or not agree, it's irrelevant. So it's a complex thing. The average person thinks, well, if a bunch of scientists agree with this, uh, that must make it so. No, unfortunately not. Scientists, as I talked about in my presentation there, are human beings just like everything else. So they are corruptible. They are biased by having to work for a living and be dependent on grant money and things of that nature. They have their own political persuasion and beliefs that leak into their activities and so on and so forth. So it's no different than any other profession. There are good and bad people, just like there are good and bad priests, there are good and bad lawyers, there are good and bad scientists. And unfortunately, in my experience, there are tens of thousands of scientists who are off the reservation. I like that you said in the presentation, science proves principles, engineers apply proven principles. But there's confusion around this dynamic. Yes. Explain the confusion. Well, a lot of times when our legislators... Well, let's say they talk about offshore wind energy as an example. The questions, if you look at the questions being asked is, can we do this? That's an engineering question, and engineers, this is their job to make things happen. So by and large, they're going to say, sure, we can do it. It's maybe a challenge and blah, 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 but yes, we can do it. But in my view, that isn't the appropriate question to be asking. The real question is, does this make sense to do? And nobody's asking, does this make sense to do? And that's really a science question. That's the difference between scientists and engineers. Scientists are about trying to assess the sensibility of doing something. Engineers are about addressing the practicality of doing it. Those are two completely different matters. 
And there's a proper sequence of them. There's no point of saying whether we can do something if it doesn't make sense. But that's really what's happening. We are pounding round pegs into square holes saying, yeah, sure, we can stick uh, turbines out in the ocean here. And you see they spin. You see they produce electricity, blah, 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 blah. So you see it works. Yes, it works. The question is, does it make any sense? What's it doing? What's the cost? What's the real cost? What's the environmental impact here? What's the impact on reliability to our grid? All these other type of things. And nobody's asking any of those type of questions. They're just saying, we'll work those things out. <laughs> that is preposterous, in my opinion. It reminds me of the health care package. Just sign it, everybody. It's 12,000 pages. We'll deal with the rest of the detail later. Something like that. Yeah. I want to ask you about the agenda confusing possibility with probability. I think that's very insidious stuff. Do you have an example of that? Well, since we're talking about wind energy, I see this all the time. For instance, in North Carolina, again, when we're talking about offshore wind energy, groups that are proposing wind energy is a great thing without any substance behind them, like the Sierra Club, tend to say all sorts of things like we have great offshore wind resources. So, yes, wind resources are there. The wind does blow, but we're switching the topic to can this be done here? Yes, we can put them out there and the propellers will turn based on the wind blowing. But that's not really the important question. The important question is does this really make economic, environmental, and technical sense? And none of those things have anything to do with the fact that we can do it. The probabilities are misrepresented as making sense, and that just isn't so. You talk about the precautionary principle, and I think this is worthy of a mention. Yeah, it's a big deal. It is a very big deal. Talk a little bit about the precautionary principle. Well, the precautionary principle on the surface is one of these things that sounds innocuous and almost sensible. Basically, it's saying, let's be safe. <laughs> Who doesn't want to be safe? But when it gets applied to the type of things we're talking about here, it ends up being an extraordinarily restrictive set of things here so that we cannot do anything until we can prove it's going to be safe under all sorts of circumstances. This is really reversing the scenario here. It's sort of like uh, in our legal system, we are innocent until proven guilty. Well, the precautionary principle effectively reverses this to saying it's assumed to be guilty until proven innocent. Yeah, but the people in charge cherry-pick where the precautionary principle is going to be utilized. Yes. For example, with the smart meters, which are the stupidest, most horrific, idiocy, violent to all biological systems, and they're just putting them in at the speed of light because they can. They've confused the public that they're smart and they're horrific. They've decided to turn a blind eye to that, so they've cherry-pick where they're going to apply the precautionary principle. Absolutely. And the same thing goes for wind energy. The same people who are saying we're all about the environment, whether it's, let's say it's the Audubon Society or whatever, when it comes down to it being a proven devastating source of bat and avian kills, they shrug their shoulders and say, well, you know, what can you do? We have to deal with what we've got and blah, 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 blah. So all of a sudden the precautionary principle that they profess such a great concern for goes completely out the window. Particularly when it comes to microwave radiation or any type of electromagnetic radiation. We did a lot of segments here in the area of dirty energy. And I was in shock to find out on a completely separate level that wind energy produces so much dirty energy that if people had any idea, they would drop it fast. 
just on health reasons and biological reasons, having nothing to do with the fact that it's ineffective, it's not economical, the fact that it doesn't do what people think it does, all that kind of stuff. This just adds a whole other level of idiocy to it. That's the problem when you bypass a scientific assessment of something. I have no problem with people stepping forward and saying, XYZ alternate energy is something we ought to be considering. That's fine. But my answer to them is fine. If you think XYZ alternate source of energy is a good thing, then put forward a scientific assessment that proves it. It's as simple as that. But instead, these people bypass that and go to legislators and say, look, you stand up here for wind energy. Uh, We're going to market you as being a green, friendly person. That'll be uh, something that our members here will support and send you money for. And so it all comes down to some political decision that has no basis in science whatsoever. I like that you wrote that there's an attempt to use scientists to imply scientificness, and that's a really important distinction. (laughs) Most people think of a half a dozen scientists, author a report, six PhDs from Stanford, let's say, that that in turn implies that this is a scientific report. But unfortunately, that is simply not so. Absolutely not so. A report is only a scientific report if it meets the standards of science. In other words, if it follows and adheres to the process of science. So whether it's signed by six PhDs or 6,000 PhDs is irrelevant. The only question is, did this report or study follow the process of science here? And unfortunately, most of them don't. I saw that in your presentation, you talk about environmentalism as a religion and that science deals with facts and religion deals with faith. And I have to tell you that I was there. I was one of the people who believed what I was being told. And I don't think that there's anything wrong with feeling so connected to Gaia, to the earth, and to plants, and all the beauty that's here, and protective of it, and willing to go to bat on behalf of what you understand that to be. I have compassion because I'm still one of those people. What's the tragedy, John, to me is that all that has been hijacked, all that connectedness, all that feeling toward the earth, all of that commitment toward recycling, toward taking care of what's here is really being hijacked by a subculture run by very few people but with tons of money, access to the media full-time, and an ability to brainwash the entire public, of which I was one of them. As you heard me say, I come from an environmental background, so I agree with what you're saying. It's a tragedy. It is a tragedy. These people have effectively hijacked well-intentioned citizens here to be part of a political agenda. You know, even the spraying of the air, this spraying project has been going on for at least 25 years. And now people like Bill Gates and Al Gore are coming out and saying that, well, of course we have to do that to stop global warming. Basically, they can do whatever they want. The thing is, when you write about cognitive dissonance in your presentation, why did you bring that up? Well, this is a good term. A lot of people don't really understand what that means is, but it's rampant in the business, in my view. Yes. Cognitive dissonance effectively means that you're presented with the facts, but you distort the interpretation of the facts in such a way to continue on doing something wrong. The term originated from a woman back in the 1950s who believed that the Earth was going to be destroyed by alien forces. And uh, she was very convincing in her beliefs and her presentation of those beliefs. 
And she got a substantial number of people convinced that this was going to happen, so they sold everything they had and went to a particular spot where they were told they were going to be saved as believers. She had a specific date and all that as far as when this is all going to happen, and naturally, when the time came, nothing happened. <laughs> so that was the question is, say, okay, what are you going to do? They had an obvious choice of saying, oops, we made a mistake here, uh, we were wrong, and this whole thing is a charade. They could have said that, but they chose not to. Instead, they adopted a new set of beliefs, and that was that these aliens who were going to attack the planet took pity on these people and said, okay, hey, we're going to change our plans and not wipe out the Earth here because of these good people. So they've just made up another story to be consistent with their delusion. And that's effectively what cognitive dissonance is, is that irrespective of the facts, people are going to continue on with having some delusion because their faith is more important than facts. There were some references I gave in my presentation there about how, in some cases, people actually become more entrenched in misbeliefs the more facts they're presented with. My understanding of cognitive dissonance is that it is a dissociative ability that we all have to not deal with reality or facts. Could be. And it's in every profession. But I think it's an important thing because, for example, if you talk about the spraying of the air project, people will accept that the air is being sprayed with virulent chemicals that are toxic to all biological systems in the context of climate change. Well, we have to do it, right? So take the barium, take the aluminum, take the mercury, take the other stuff that's in there at nanoparticulates, go ahead and breathe it in. And that's also on all the snow melt, it's in the water, it's on the land, it's for the animals that we eat and depend on. The bottom line is there's cognitive dissonance if the environmental groups don't see that this is a charade. It's a total charade. And uh, that's why I think cognitive dissonance is very important because you will think things that are horrific are okay if your belief is strong enough about something else. So for global warming and climate change, it's okay to spray the air with these toxic metals. That's an example of cognitive dissonance. When a person says that's okay and completely disassociates from the reality of what it's doing to biological system, that is a perfect example of cognitive dissonance. Well, once they say that the existence of the planet is at stake, obviously that's hard to trump. So they can then say killing thousands of eagles is okay, that having tens of thousands of citizens near wind turbines being sick is okay. You can just fill in the blank because all of these things are still going to be relatively small compared to the survival of the planet itself. Right, and the smart grid being put in as fast as it's being put in, basically they're going to be able to monitor everything from wherever you live. And again, exactly what you said, there will be no way to trump this because this is how we're protecting the earth by monitoring the carbon dioxide that's going in and out of your house. And the use of appliances, we're saving energy. We're not contributing to the carbon footprint. The whole thing is a total fraud. Unfortunately, largely is, yes. So, Where are so you? you asked about the peer review. That is something to mention here again. Let's uh, talk about it. Peer review is portrayed as being a way of assuring accuracy in the results of a study, let's say. Unfortunately, that is false. It was never intended to prove anything. What peer review means is that it has attained a level of acceptability. Acceptability and accuracy are two different things. In other words, the people who were selected to look at this thought it was okay. That doesn't make it right. Just says from their beliefs and their background, they thought it was okay. 
the problems are rampant here because these people know that peer review is, again, respected by the public. They have stacked the deck in the peer review. So when an editor sends out a paper for review to 10 scientists, he knows very well what the preconditioned beliefs of these scientists are in the first place. He doesn't pick them randomly out of his Rolodex. He says, okay, here's people I know that are sympathetic, that have a like-minded view of this whole thing, and so he sends it to them. The other thing is that there have been independent studies done on the peer review system here that have shown how bogus it is. One of my favorites is cited in the presentation there, where they actually took over 100 papers that were approved on the peer review process that already passed. In other words, they had been submitted, they had gone through other scientists looking through it, and they had officially signed off on these papers. They waited a few years after these papers were gone through the process and resubmitted them again. But what they did to change things was they submitted it under the name of a new scientist, and they particularly picked a scientist who wasn't well-known. They picked fictitious names in a lot of cases. A lot of times these other peer reviews were passed on the fact that, well, this guy is, a, is an expert, so who am I to argue with him? So they put forward new scientists who were unknown to say, okay, here's their theory, and they submitted the exact same document pretty much word for word as it was on the approved thing. Then they submitted it to the same sources that approved it, the same editors, whatever, but a few years later. So the first interesting thing was less than 10% even recognized that these things had been submitted before, <laughs> which is uh, amazing in itself that these people were really paying attention. And then something uh, like 80-some percent were actually rejected. In other words, the second time they were submitted to the peer review process, they failed. They didn't pass, and the remarks and the comments of the reviewers were pretty severe, saying, you know, this makes no sense at all, this contradicts other findings, all sorts of things here saying that these people didn't like what this study was saying. But, again, I'm going to remind you, these were all papers and studies that had been subjected to peer review before and passed. So how can you submit the same paper twice and one time it passes and one time it fails? That tells you this is a very, very, very informal, subjective process here that means very little that there's such a thing as peer review. I want to recommend that the public listening to this segment listen to our interview with Dr. Tim Ball and Gavin Menzies, who wrote 1421. It's a pretty extensive piece on the peer review process, if you are interested. What is your biggest concern of the next couple of years in the United States? Well, that's a hard one. My whole uh, agenda here, Cam, is that when we, we put forward these technical policies, that they be science-based. That's it. That's all. So if we want to have a national energy policy, for instance, it ought to be truly science-based. So most people would agree with that and say, sure, that makes sense. But the fact is we're nowhere near doing that here. Uh, effectively, lobbyists are running our policies so that we have energy policies that are written by self-serving lobbyists. So my concern is a couple of things. One is that we stand to be overtaken by, well, let's say, some of our competitors, like China. They don't have to deal so much with people like environmental groups and whatever. They have their own issues, don't get me wrong, but they are being extraordinarily aggressive in things like SMRs, small modular reactors, nuclear power, special type of nuclear power, that in my view is the future of civilization here. Tell us why. Well, because a small modular reactor just has extraordinary benefits to it. 
there's like 30 companies that are making these in different stages, people like Westinghouse, Toshiba, whatever, some pretty substantial companies. So a small modular example might be that you'd have a nuclear power plant that'd be the size of a garden shed, literally. And this garden shed, as an example, would be buried 20, 30 feet in the ground. And from this garden shed, nuclear reactor, called a small modular reactor, SMR, Again, I'm simplifying here, but there'd be power lines coming out here that would effectively just tap into a nearby telephone poles here where you have power. So you wouldn't have to have any of the type of things you have now with large nuclear facilities. They have special locations, and because of all sorts of circumstances here, they have to have a lot of water. These things would be self-contained, so there wouldn't be that. You really think the self-containment is something that can truly occur? Oh, it already is occurring. As I say, they've already built these things. So, so yeah. for example, if you put one of these small modular reactors in the ground, let's say in California or in other areas that are big potential earthquake areas, how is it possible to contain if you have a massive earthquake? Again, you're going to touch a question here. The way these things are set up here is, is that they are not something that is going to fall apart or destroy here if you have such a thing of that nature here. These things are self-actuating. They would have fail-safes here to see that these type of things, as I said, it's such a small little thing here. So if you have something like guards, we're not talking about a huge thing that's hundreds of feet. It'd be very easy to make protected something that's eight feet on a side. Right. But you're a physicist, so you know that small does not mean not potent. Oh, well, it definitely is potent. That's the good thing about it. <laughs> yeah. It does have potency. But I'm just giving you my opinion yeah, that uh, yeah. this area has extraordinary benefits. It's going to happen. There's no doubt it's going to happen. And it's either us, the United States, that's going to be leading this, or China. So that's our choice. If we want to sit back and say, well, this could happen, that could happen, this could happen, that could happen, fine. China's going to take this over, and just that one development alone here will give them extraordinary political power and technical advantages that we will be all of a sudden a second-class country here. We could go on for hours about what's happened in the United States as a result of their intervention and what's happened with money, what's happened with land. There are areas that are dedicated to everybody and anybody foreign that have to do with companies that are just given land here. Are you aware of that? Somewhat, not a lot. Okay. Let's talk a little bit about what Lenin said. You quoted, a lie told often enough becomes the truth. Give four years to teach the children, and the seed I have sown will never be uprooted. And then you went on to write about cheating in schools and this creativity crisis. Why did you spend time writing about cheating in schools, and what does this have to do with the obstruction of science? Well, I think our whole academic system here is being degraded purposefully, not accidentally. Every aspect of it, just about. For instance, the priority of science is being diminished over time here. If you look at our standards, if you look at how we stand compared to other countries, we're losing ground to a lot of other countries. If you look at things like grade inflation, this is a very bad thing. Pernicious, I would say, if you want to use a big word. Yep that is effectively undermining our whole academic system here, that students here get out of school with having a 4.0 grade average, and they know relatively little because of grade inflation. This is all designed to fool parents so that parents don't complain about how little their children are knowing. 
But this comes home to roost to us as a society because there's no fooling about this when it gets into the real world ultimately here. And that, of course, is why these people have to cheat because it's either admit that they don't know it or cheat. So they're going to cheat. And you tell me, what's that going to result in when we have an ignorant, cheating populace here as uh, people who are running the country? I see the school system as a massive propaganda indoctrination structure that is brainwashing children to not think, to not be able to critically think, to not be creative. To me, most of the children and young adults are being overfed stuff that has nothing to do with being able to function in society. That's pretty much what I've said there, I would say. But I think things like great inflation aren't getting proper amount of attention there. And I showed one graph there that was an independent study that shows pretty convincingly that it is. So we're being fooled here. And I think it's death by a thousand stings, as I've said before. A lot of little ways that we're undermining things here. And the question is, are people really paying attention to what's going on? This whole business of Common Core here is another effort that in theory has some merit to it. But in practicality, some of the things I've read doesn't sound too good to me. So what do you feel positive about in all that you've been working on? What do you feel positive about? I still think that people have a good spirit. There's a lot of good people out there that are trying to do the right thing. And I've met a lot of politicians, quite frankly, in my occasional visits. Let's say in North Carolina is an example. Uh, compared to New York, I'm a citizen, native, I should say, of uh, New York. But I found the North Carolina legislator, to their credit, to be much more open than I expected them to be. I've already been invited to speak to the North Carolina state legislator three times as a citizen. Some people say, well, you must know somebody. Well, no. I've only been a resident of North Carolina for three years or something, so I never went to school with any of these people and never had a business with them, so I don't know them from Adam. So that's not so at all. But I've been asked to talk on three topics. One was on sea level rise. One was on wind energy. And the third, most recent one that we're talking about here is about how science is being degraded. The fact that I was asked by state legislators to talk about these things, I take as a very good positive sign. The fact that I'm being asked by Congress here, this House Science and Technology Committee, uh, this isn't me doing this. This is being sponsored by the House Science and Technology Committee. They think enough of what my presentation is about to say, look, we want you to come and speak to Congress and their aides about this. I take that as a good sign. And you'll be there on the 17th of October. That's correct. Fantastic. John Droz Jr., I want to thank you for joining us on the show today to hear about your work and to talk about different aspects of your presentation. And for those of you who would like to read his presentation that he'll be presenting in Washington, go to scienceunderassault.info. And also, please take a look at his website, wiseenergy.org. He has an environmental newsletter called Energy and Environmental Newsletter. You can sign up and get that. And I want to thank you for your time and your dedication to making things clear to the public. Thank you so much for being with us. We appreciate the opportunity, Kim, and thank you for your speaking out as well. Thank you, John. 